Life is less a destination. It's more of a journey, isn't it? Have you ever tried to pause time? Have you ever had a moment that you wished would last forever? I can remember a moment early in my life that felt as good as anything could ever get. And I remember wishing that I could just pause that moment. It's a poignant memory for me. But for all the wishing and the wanting that I might have done, it did not linger. That moment, like countless others, are in the past. Now, of course, we don't want everything to last forever, do we? I can remember another time I was still young, though not quite as young as the first time that I was just thinking about. I had just finished my fourth round of chemotherapy. I was laying in bed. I was uncomfortable, suffering, and I could hardly stand myself. And all I wanted was for time to speed up, right? Just to fall asleep and let it go. This memory again, like so many others, is now in the past. Human history is, and our own peculiar histories too, in many ways defined by the moments that we have tried to grasp and the moments that we have tried to refuse. If we wish to grasp a moment, we build monuments. And those monuments aren't built only for good memories, sometimes they are bad memories, but they all represent moments that we are loath to forget. Travesties that we don't want to repeat, loved ones that we don't want to lose, values that we don't want to betray, milestones that we want to preserve. And likewise, those moments that we want to refuse we repress. We try to put them behind us, as they say. When we suffer and we get better, we're glad that things change. When we're at peace and then suddenly we're not, we bemoan the fickleness of life and time. In many ways, this is what it is to be human. But it's a perspective that is born in brokenness. And it's fed by a miscomprehension of this place. Jesus did not live this way. If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We're in chapter 9 today. We're going to reflect on two passages. The first occurred prior to Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and the second occurred after those events. So we're going to look first at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. I'm going to read through verse 36. The gospel says this, About eight days after these sayings, he took, Jesus took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. And as these two men were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here, and let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. But while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. 
And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. This is the word of God. This was an interesting event in the life of Jesus for several reasons. First, given their proximity in the context to the ancient city of Caesarea Philippi, the mountain that Jesus and his disciples ascended that day was most likely Mount Hermon. You can look it up on a map. It's in northern Israel. It's an important mountain because in the mythology of the ancient Jewish people, Mount Hermon was the site of a rebellion, a rebellion that happened prior to the flood when a group of angelic beings met there and decided to rebel against God. That's part of the mythology. God may have chosen this site to reveal Jesus' true nature to his disciples for this very reason, because of the importance of the location in their stories. Second, Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah. Have you ever asked yourself, how did they know? It was Moses and Elijah. Well, we're not told how they knew, but somehow they knew. But their presence there on the mountain is beyond shocking. Moses died in near 1400 BC. His death is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Elijah, perhaps surprisingly, the scriptures tell us, did not die. According to the biblical record, God took him into the heavens on what appeared to Elisha, who's a prophet who worked with him, appeared to Elisha to be a chariot of fire pulled by fiery horses. It's actually a pretty funny scene. Elisha is really overtaken by it. The chariot comes right out of the heavens, out of nowhere, and Elisha just starts screaming madly, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, the chariots and horsemen. He's almost catatonic. He says it a number of times. That happened in the mid to late 800s B.C. Here we are with Jesus on this mountain around 33 BC, uh, 33 AD. Why and how were these two men in particular talking with Jesus? Well, some people take the story as metaphorical. Scholars like to point out that Moses might be representative of the law and Elijah of the prophets. So perhaps this was a vision saying that the law and the prophets were attesting to Jesus. But that interpretation, did you pay attention to the story, is a rejection of the testimony of Peter and John, both of whom testify in their later epistles that this was for them a flesh and blood encounter. The passage in Luke also seems to say as much. I mean, if these were just ghostly apparitions or some sort of strange visions, why would Peter have suggested building tents for them to stay in? It would seem that to Peter, James, and John, this was as real as anything that they had experienced in their lives. And now we return to time, which is constant and flowing for us. That's what I was talking about at the beginning, right? We can't stop it. It just moves. Good or bad, it just moves. But time appears to be less restrictive for God. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, both of these men, during their earthly lives, spoke with God on mountains. It seems to me that the conversation on this mountain was outside of time. Moses and Elijah, separated in our time by centuries, were speaking with God. They were speaking with Jesus on a mountain. In our space, Moses and Elijah had been on Mount Sinai, centuries apart. In our time, Moses was in 1446 B.C. and Elijah was in the mid to late 800s B.C. But in this moment, they were on Mount Hermon, speaking with Jesus in 33 AD. 
And Peter was overwhelmed by the scene. I mean, what a moment that must have been for him. Jesus looked like he had never looked before. Moses and Elijah had stepped out of time and joined them on the mountain. Peter was overhearing a conversation between the three of them, maybe listening to each of them speak with Jesus out of their own time. And Peter's reaction was understandable. Peter wanted to bottle the moment, right? Let's bottle this moment. Let's stay here forever. Let's build shelters and maybe eventually a city. Let's start a camp meeting right here on Mount Hermon. Maybe we can lay the foundation for a chapel or a cathedral. Let's invite people to come and to speak with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. This is the beginning. This is what we've been waiting for. After all, the temple in Jerusalem had been built on the traditional site of where Abraham had been intending to sacrifice his son Isaac. Maybe the kingdom of God, their very first stones, will be laid on this mountain where Moses and Elijah communed with Jesus. Peter's pretty excited. He's ready for this to be the capital city. But God interrupted Peter. A cloud descended on that mountain, much like the cloud had descended on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, when Moses was giving the law to the people. That cloud terrified the Israelites so much, they were so terrified by the presence of God in that cloud, that they begged God never to speak to them again. It's quite something. And this cloud scared the disciples too. And then just as God had spoken out of the cloud at Sinai, God spoke out of this cloud to the disciples. God professed Jesus as his son, and he commanded Peter, James, and John to listen to him. Now the Hebrew word for listen is the word shema. You want to try that with me? Shema. And it means listen in the sense of obey. Now, if your parents, I know you've done this, and maybe others of you have done this too. Have you ever said to somebody, or maybe your child, did you hear me? And you are not asking whether their ears work, right? You assume that if they heard you, they would be doing what you asked, right? And that is what Shema means. It doesn't mean just listen, it means obey. So, if you've ever said that, then you were speaking Hebrew. You might as well have said, Shema! And this moment wasn't only a high point for Peter and John, it was a high point for Jesus too. On this mountain, the witnesses tell us that Jesus became different. The translation I read said, His clothing became white and gleaming. And that is a terrible translation. The two words that are used here, the first one is used for a flash of lightning. Would you translate that white? I suppose. But it's way brighter than white, right? And the other word used is for the brightness of the sun. So he looked as though lightning had flashed and the sun was shining at them. That's amazing. On this mountain, God revealed Jesus' true nature to his disciples. For the first time in all the time they knew him, they saw him. All the other times they had seen him, he appeared as any other human male might appear. But on this day, they saw what had been veiled by human flesh. It reminds me of a line from Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, right? God veiled himself in human flesh. 
And Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus of his departure. In the language here, it says that they were speaking to him about his exodus. That's what it says, his exodus. Now, that word normally referred to like a military campaign or to like a parade or a formal processional, which is interesting. But of course, those of us who know the history of Israel know that the word was used of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. So somehow they're talking to Jesus about his exodus. What precisely do you think they were discussing? Most likely they were talking about Jesus' ascension into the heavens after he had been raised from the dead. That story is preserved for us in Luke chapter 24. So if you have Bibles open, you can turn there uh, or it will be on the screen for you. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew for them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. On the first mountain, where he was transfigured, Jesus saw where he was headed. Sometimes you get to a high place, you can see ahead. Right? You can see what's in front of you. After he was tried, convicted, tortured, executed, buried, rose from the dead, and then spent 40 days interacting with his disciples, Jesus would arrive again on a mountain, and his disciples would again see his glory. In the second volume of Luke's Gospel, Luke wrote two books, right? The Gospel of Luke is the first one. The book of Acts is the second. In his second volume, in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 12, Luke's revealed to us that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. That's where he was, just outside of Jerusalem. And this adds dimension to that final prayer. Those of you who were with us for the Good Friday service, you heard this prayer again, the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This adds dimension to that because the Garden of Gethsemane was where? It was on the Mount of Olives. It was the same place where he ascended into the heavens. That event has been preserved in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 44, the prayer that he prayed in that garden. Jesus prayed these words. And he came out and went, as was his habit, Jesus, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. Now when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not come into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was praying that night from the place he would later ascend into the heavens, having been resurrected, vindicated, glorified, and then victorious. And Jesus was more or less asking the Father in Gethsemane if there was another road to that destination. After all, he's already there. This is the mountain he would ascend from. Can't we just do it now? But there was no other road. He had to get off the Mount of Transfiguration and walk through the cross if he was going to attain the ascension. And so Jesus drank the cup. He walked the road. He died for us. Two mountains, Hermon and Olivet, 
the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Jesus' Ascension. Two mountains, and between them lay Jesus' trial, Jesus' conviction, Jesus' torture, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. Peter wanted to stay on the first mountain, didn't he? Of course he did. Who wouldn't? Peter wanted to bottle time, capture the moment, preserve the memory. If he had had a camera, he would have taken a selfie, don't you think? If he had the resources, he would have bought the property. It would have been the church of holy Moses and Elijah's encounter with Jesus, something like that. It would have been said in Latin, it would have been beautiful. But Jesus did not grasp at that moment. He received it, and he released it. The writer of the book of Hebrews, after having discussed a long list of people who remained faithful to God all the way to the end of their earthly lives, has summarized Jesus' resolve with these words found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My father-in-law has often said that life must be lived with an open hand. We can't grasp the blessings. We can't refuse the sufferings. As Job observed long ago, preserved for us in Job chapter 1 verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Each of us must journey through this world, and the road we walk will be much as the road Jesus walked, a road that passes through blessing and curse. Some of this is our doing, consequences of our choices. Some of this is due to the decisions of others, consequences of their choices. And some of this is due to the explicit will of God. On this journey, we cannot bottle the blessings, nor can we avoid all of the suffering. Jesus did not walk this road instead of us. He walked this road ahead of us. That's what Hebrews was saying. That's why he told us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the trailblazer of our faith. Jesus knows the way. He walked it ahead of us, and we must follow him. We must deny ourselves take up our crosses daily and follow him in fact. There were sufferings on the road that Jesus walked through this world. We've just rehearsed some of the worst of them in these last few days. But there were unspeakable blessings as well. There were parties and weddings, feasts of Passover, healing of the blind, feeding of 5,000 people, making the lame to walk, raising of the dead. Wonderful blessings. The greatest of those we celebrate today, the day that he rose from the dead. Now, I need to say that not all suffering is the same. 
And even though we can't refuse the suffering, we are not condemned to suffer unnecessarily. And we suffer unnecessarily when we suffer as a result of our own poor choices and even our own wicked behavior. We must turn away from those things, that we might not require the discipline of God or the consequences of evil to redirect us. But even if we live righteously, like Noah did, for those who know the stories, or Job did, or as Daniel did, we'll not avoid all heartbreak. Even those people too suffered in seasons. Even more, Jesus himself was sinless, perfect in all of his doings, and he endured great suffering nonetheless. And then he had the audacity to tell us, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. We must live life with an open hand, receiving both blessing and curse with faithfulness to God and confidence in the road that Jesus trailblazed ahead of us. Our world, though, is full of grasping hands, isn't it? We grasp blessings, pleasant moments, and the honor of our past in many ways. Many take photos, keep mementos, gather souvenirs to preserve the high points, the memories, as we say. Nations build monuments, they write anthems, they celebrate festivals to their victories and their defeats and their great villains and their great heroes. Religious communities, too. We ensconce the insights and brilliance and piety of our peculiar traditions and hymns and songs and liturgies and traditions and buildings and placards. The death and resurrection of Jesus, however, reminds us that the kingdom of God is not to be found in any of these things. The kingdom of God is not of this world. Didn't Jesus say that? Not of this world. To enter into it, Jesus himself had to die, rise, and ascend. By going ahead of us into the kingdom of God, Jesus has forever transformed the nature of our lives and of our reality. Now, for the worldly person, birth is the beginning and death is the end. How much more obvious could it be? And consequently, this world is all we have. So we better make the best of it. And we better remember what happened in it. And we better preserve memories for the future of the things we did in it. Right? That's the worldly mind. However, Jesus has insisted that this world is a womb. This is where humanity has been conceived, but it is not where we are intended to live out our days. This is less a place of being in the scriptures and more a place of becoming. What we have been taken, what we have taken to be death, Jesus reveals to be birth. And what some have called the light at the end of the tunnel is the delivery room at the end of the birth canal. And it's for this reason that Jesus, when he speaks about the end times, he compares the tumult of those days to birth pains. It must be quite unsettling for an unborn child to feel the contractions in the mother's womb and to feel squeezed and forced out of the only world she or he has ever known. That must be stressful, I imagine. I can't remember it happening. It's so stressful I've blocked it out. And life squeezes on us too. Sometimes so hard that we don't know if we'll survive. 
Jesus felt that pressure before us at Gethsemane. That's what that prayer was about. But he kept his hand open and he followed the Father's voice. Eventually, we will lose everything. It was in the video we watched with our kids, right? Eventually, we will lose everything. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. All things in this world are temporary. They pass away. Whether we lose them today or we lose them tomorrow, the pain of that loss will not be lessened by the timing. In fact, the pain of loss has increased the harder we grasp. It's only decreased by the trust in God when we follow Him. To inherit eternal life, to be born again, we must lose everything and then receive back what God wishes to give us. For Jesus, the loss of everything culminated in his death for us. But on Resurrection Sunday, what God restored was everything that Jesus had laid down. God restored what was taken when he raised Jesus from the dead. And this is our story too, if we trust God to lead us. In speaking of Jesus' resurrection from the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul put the matter this way. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. In New, New England, I used to say, an acorn looks nothing like an oak tree. And that's what he's talking about here, right? The seed that you plant looks nothing like what grows out of it, except to a scientist who can see it all in the genetics. But to the regular, all the rest of us, it doesn't look anything like it. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, if there is an acorn, there is also a spiritual body, there is an oak tree. Verse 50, now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So my friends, if you have followed Jesus, persevere. Do not turn back. Jesus is risen. And we who trust in him by following his example and his teachings will follow after him in the resurrection as well. That's his promise. But if you've not followed Jesus, might I invite you today to begin. And if that's you today, and you don't know where to start, I encourage you to purchase a Christian Bible and read first the Gospel according to Matthew. Find that book and read it. And then after you've read it and you've heard Jesus' summary of what the kingdom of God looks like, and what the people of the kingdom look like. Then go back to Genesis and read it through. Allowing, that's the first book of the Bible. Allowing Jesus to teach you how to live in this world. And how to journey from death to life. And that journey, the scriptures reveal, is really a journey from conception to birth. From conception to birth. You've been conceived, but you are not yet born. 
you are still in the womb. And all the things we fight over are like Jacob and Esau, two unborn children wrestling in their mother's womb for market share, for territory, for resources, still in the womb, thinking it's all they have. Jesus will show you how to be born into the real world. The world of the Spirit is the real world. The world of the flesh is the shadow. This is the revelation of Jesus, and it is the truth and the good news of the gospel, if you can receive it. Amen.